Yes, and welcome back to another great week on Diffusion. We've got a few cool stories lined up for you today. We're going to go from looking back at exploring the unknown of space and pushing that final frontier to looking at those people who are studying, well, what we'd probably consider just the plain obvious. I'm Jackie Pepper, but before we head on to those stories, let's get up to speed with this week's science news with Richard Coots. Clever kids, drug trial turmoil and technicolour fashion. That's next on Diffusion Science, but first, prehistoric walking fish. Paleontologists in the Canadian Arctic have discovered the fossilised remains of an animal halfway between land-going vertebrates and fish, dubbed Tiktaalik rose. The novel fish has fins and scales just like a fish. However, it's the anatomy of the front fins that is particularly interesting. The major joints, like the shoulder, elbow, and parts of the wrist, are all there. Luckily, the bones were preserved as three-dimensional fossils, and multiple specimens were found at the same site. This meant the researchers could estimate the range of movement of the limbs. These major joints were probably used to support the weight of the body. The fossils of Tiktaalik were dated to 375 million years ago. Before this find, there was a 20 million year gap in the fossil record between fish and land-going vertebrae. 385 million years ago, there is evidence that fish with four fins swam in the shallow waters. Then, 365 million years ago, the earliest four-limbed vertebrates were beginning to colonise the land. Scientists call four-limbed vertebrates pteropods, but since this animal is both a fish and a pteropod, the paleontologists from the University of Chicago have nicknamed this one a fisherpod. So what makes smart kids different? Intelligent children differ from average kids based on the pattern of brain growth. During early development, researchers found that there is a relationship between intelligence and cortex thickness. The cortex is the outer layer of the brain and is responsible for abstract reasoning, planning and other executive functions. Judith Rappaport led a team from the US and Canada following 307 children of varying ages as they grew up, scanning them periodically with an MRI machine to measure brain volume and giving IQ tests. The team compared the brain development of children, dividing them into three intelligence categories. Children in the two lower groups had cerebral cortexes that peaked in thickness at age 8 and then began to thin. However, children in the highest IQ group had a thinner cortex at age 7 and 8, which continues to thicken until the age of 12. It then underwent thinning at a much more rapid rate during adolescence, sometimes dropping the thickness below their peers with a lower IQ. The thickening of the cerebral cortex is known to depend on both genetics and environmental conditions, and the researchers will go on to research what sets a child on a particular neurodevelopment path. And here's one for the Ethics Committee. An investigation into a UK drug trial that left six men seriously ill has found no evidence to suggest that there was anything wrong with the drug or the way the tests were run. On March 13, six healthy men were injected with an anti-inflammatory drug as part of the drug's trial on humans. Within minutes of the injections, the volunteers began screaming and passing out. They suffered organ failure and were put on life support. The small German research company Tejanero developed the drug as a possible treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, leukaemia and multiple sclerosis. After laboratory analysis and tests on animals, the drug was cleared for its first trials on humans. The human volunteers were given doses 500 times lower than those given to monkeys, which did not suffer from such biological conditions. 
A regulatory body from the UK has not found anything wrong with the conduct of the trial and has called in international experts to examine the issue further. It is feared that the inability of the regulatory body to identify an obvious mistake may increase the public's wariness of the testing of new drugs. And one from the world of Technicolor fashion, Greg Sotzig, at the University of Connecticut, has invented threads of so-called electrochromic polymers that change colour in response to an applied electrical field. The threads work because the electrons in their chemical bonds can absorb light across a range of visible wavelengths. When voltage is applied, it changes the energy levels of the electrons, causing them to absorb light in different wavelengths and thus changing the material's colour. Sotzig is able to change fibres from orange to blue and from red to blue. He next hopes to switch from white to red and blue to green. Ultimately, Sotzig hopes to weave differently coloured threads into a crisscross pattern that connected by metal wires to a battery pack, each cross point becomes a pixel and thus can imitate a computer or television screen. The fabric could also be made into clothing whose colour could be switched by a microcontroller according to the wearer's mood. Or, by connecting the microcontroller to a camera, the pixels could display the pattern and colours of the wearer's surrounding, thus helping him to melt into the background. Most of the time we go about our day-to-day lives concentrating on what we have to do today, who we're meeting for lunch and what time that appointment is. But when you're looking up at the sky you realise that we really are just 7 billion people crammed onto this tiny rock, hurtling through a mostly big empty space. April 12th is the day that we can turn to the skies and appreciate human space travel. Jackie Hayes reporting. To my generation, the name Neil Armstrong is synonymous with space exploration. Today, I went around to some of my peers and I asked them what it was Neil Armstrong did. Most of these people uh, laughed at my question. They paused and then they asked that slightly awkward question, oh, are you serious? (laughs) Okay, so all of us know Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon. But I asked the same group of people who Yuri Gagarin was. To this question, I received mostly blank looks. In my mind, Yuri Gagarin's contribution to space travel is just as significant, if not more significant, than Neil Armstrong's. 45 years ago, on April 12, 1961, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person to leave Earth and enter space. Aboard Vostok 1, he completed one orbit in 108 minutes and returned to Earth safely. His return was witnessed by an old woman, her daughter, and a cow. Now... I'm going to admit something here today that I don't like admitting. I am a very, very nervous flyer. When I'm on the plane, my heart rate is really quite rapid. I'm one of those people who clutch the armrests and flinch at the slightest turbulence. And I just would like to take this opportunity to apologise to everyone who has had to sit next to me during a flight. So this happens to me on a big Qantas jet where I can walk around, I can go to the toilet when I please, and I get handed Tim Tams every couple of hours. For Yuri's flight into space, the descent module was 2.3 metres across and he was crammed in with all the necessary operating equipment. Altogether, the descent module weighed only about 5 tonnes. The descent module sat above the rocket, which was 40 metres long and about 300 tonnes. So basically, Gagarin was sitting in a tin can on top of a bomb. 
if the thought of being strapped to a bomb and sharing a 2.3 metre long cabin crammed with equipment for 108 minutes isn't making your skin crawl yet, then remember that back when Yuri went into space, no one knew what was going to happen to his mind or body during the flight. So Yuri didn't actually have any control over Vostok 1, though there was a key strapped to his chair in case of emergency. In two out of the five tests before the actual flight, the retro rockets hadn't even fired properly, so if this had happened during the flight, the module would have continued to orbit. Just in case this did happen, though, Yuri had 10 days' worth of food on board. The time to complete a single orbit was 108 minutes before coming back to Earth. When he did get back to Earth, he had to eject 7 kilometres up since Vostok went on to slam into the ground at full speed. The Russians actually lied about the fact that he ejected because it was illegal under space flights to eject before your capsule went to the ground. Ever since the first human space flight, superstitious Russian cosmonauts have mimicked Gagarin's routine before his flight. Even astronauts from the US follow this protocol when they have a joint mission with Russia. So the night before the flight, Gagarin watched the classic Soviet film White Desert of the Sun. This is something that they all have to follow. The next day, on his way to the launch site, he clambered out of his bus to answer a call of nature. In his big, bulky orange spacesuit, and using a tube, he relieved himself on the real rear of the bus. So every time a cosmonaut goes, in, goes into space, whether male or female, you all know now that only a few hours before the launch, for the sake of good luck, they pee through a tube onto the real wheel of a bus. The historic flight on the 12th of April 1961 made newspaper headlines around the world. And make no mistake, the United States was watching. Three weeks later, the United States launched their four first astronaut, Alan Shepard, into space aboard Freedom 7. The flight lasted only 15 minutes, compared to Yuri Gagarin's 108-minute flight. 20 days after Alan Shepard's flight, President Kennedy set United States on course for the moon. On April 12, at destinations all over the world, people gathered together to party and celebrate human space travel, called Yuri's Night. If you would like more information about the World Space Party, you can go to yurisnight.net. And I'll spell that for you. It's Y-U-R-I-S-N-I-G-H-T dot net. A few weeks ago, some of our fans sent us some music and we put the word out there that if you've got a band and got some cool tunes to send them along, well, we've had another taker and this is Moving Too Fast by Bloom.
and that was Moving Too Fast by Bloom. If you've got any music that you'd like to get some airplay with, send it along to diffusion at 2ser.com. Sometimes science is more than exciting breakthroughs and prancing around the lab in your white coat. Sometimes it's about quantifying the obvious, like investigating why swallowing magnets is dangerous or why smoking costs you money. Matt Clark reports. Yes, uh, sometimes it is more than the obvious, and as much as we love to prance around in our white coats, uh, there are some seemingly obvious things that do need to be researched, and there are enough scientists looking for easy grant money to do the research. Now, this research has been done all over the world, and in my travels of our, my weekly travels of scientific journals looking for things to present on diffusion, I found some interesting stuff on popular mechanics. And one of them was this um, people investigating obvious, or seemingly obvious, and that's the, that's the important point, seemingly obvious scientific facts. Uh, first of all, combining drugs and alcohol is bad for you, apparently. Now, this is a study done by the National Institute of Drug Abuse at, um, and taken out by John Hopkins University in America. Now, one of the funniest things about these studies is the, things that they, the, the names that they call their studies, I assume, to um, legitimize the thousands and thousands of dollars of grant money that they get to perform them. Now, this one, for example, was called Differential Effects of cocaine and cocaine and alcohol on neurocognitive performance. Wow, that sounds impressive. That's right. In other words, is it good to take smack and alcohol at the same time? Did they find that? It apparently, wasn't? it's not. Apparently, it's not. No way. Yes, apparently, their their study uh, has found that cognitive ability was reduced when they took coke and alcohol at the same time. More than it would have been if it was just alcohol? More than it would have been if it just was alcohol or more if it was just a line or two. You can't do both. The other interesting one was that um, people who carry guns in their cars are more susceptible to road rage. Now, this study was taken out by, um, and I'm amazed that they have to have such a, such a body, the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. In, funny enough, Harvard. And their study was called, Is an Armed Society a Polite Society? Guns and Road Rage. And they found out... Now, what they've been doing with these findings is that they've tried to... Not only that they're quantifying the obvious, they've sort of justified it by they've saying, why did we bother to do this in the first place? Now, this one there, the gun-toting, gun-toting drivers, are they um, more likely to succumb to road rage? They have found that, yes, they are, among with... Uh, also binge drinkers and um, suburbanites, apparently. But their justification for the study was that, and I quote, if someone is giving you the finger, it may be useful to have some sense of whether or not they have a gun. So you can make a better judgment. Will I let that go? Are they going to have a gun or not? One of the other interesting things I found this week was whether beer goggles exist. Now, according... Beer goggles being making people look more attractive. That's right. So after a couple of schooners, if you're in New South Wales, a couple of schooners down the pub, do people look a lot better? Now, apparently, according to the University of Manchester in England, they do. But... (laughs) 
Did they just get people drunk and get them to rate other people? Was this the that study? Was, that was certainly part of it. Where, yes. where do we sign up? Yes. <laughs> where did this take place? Well, in in, um, in England, what they, they got a whole group of people and they um, got them to rate people according to how attractive they were and how many uh, pints they'd have. So pretty much just what happens down at the local pub any given evening, really. That's That's exactly right. But what they found is they were able to replicate this by getting a sober person who was nearsighted take their glasses off, and they found that that was equivalent to eight pints of beer. <gasps> this is really funny because I'm very short-sighted. That's right. So and I'm very attractive. We're all looking pretty good. <laughs> we're all looking well, pretty you good are from Jackie that right distance. Now. Um, but the most interesting one of all that I, I think it was conducted by... Um, the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, in particular the radiologist Alan, Alan Ostrich. And this is swallowing more than one magnet is dangerous. Now, it's an important distinction, more than one. <laughs> it wasn't just swallowing one magnet is dangerous, because apparently that just comes straight out. But <laughs> guess, exactly right. Um, but get a couple in there and things start to go horribly wrong. And unfortunately, this was discovered in a young 12-year-old boy oh, who no. came in with a bellyache. And when they, once they um, got him in under an x-ray, they found all these dense objects lodged in his bowels. And they found that they were magnets. And what had happened is they were all... They'd made various, <laughs> they'd various travels throughout his bowels, but what happened is they'd get to a stage where they would actually line up once they... Um, Oh, no. Past each other. So he had all these blockages. In the twists and turns of the small and large intestine. That's exactly right. So it got to a stage that because he had multiple magnets, they the north and south poles aligned and nothing could get past. And oh. so was, had, it, was it multiple surgeries to get all the different magnets out? Or just uh, lots of prune juice? No. <laughs> no, that's the thing. All the prune juice and metamucil and all the, all the fibre in the world couldn't get it all out because the magnets were holding them in there. In the, in the soft oh, tissue of no. his bowel, so there was nothing they could do. They had to go in there and get them out. And it caused all sorts of all sorts of yucky problems, as one can imagine. But what these studies also proved, or disproved as it was, was a number of interesting things. For example, do kids like Santa? Now, the, um, the Burak College did a, a study of 300 kids and they found that 246 of these kids, when actually presented with, I suppose, um, the kid version of God, Santa, when actually, <laughs> when actually presented with the um, with their hero, they um, they weren't too happy. Um, according to the the facial expressions, um, they used they they judged their facial expressions judged on what health workers used to. to um, to judge pain experienced by children, 246 of the kids sitting on Santa's lap were not having that much of a good time. But apparently they, what the study hasn't said is whether more than one Santa was used. And so it could have been the same old mean Santa or something? It could have been the same old mean Santa with a scratchy beard. Ooh, Those yeah. polyester beards. You know how they yeah, are. yeah um, I know how they are. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all worn a polyester beard at one time in our life? I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, they found that um, expecting the worst 
uh, will not lessen your disappointment when the worst actually does happen. Uh, new psychology research published in the journal Cognition and Emotion tested that um, reassuring yet erroneous adage with more than 80 college students and they found that when the students went into a test expecting to fail and then they actually did fail, they felt a lot worse than the, than the students that um, were expecting to pass but failed. What? That's not trivial at all. That's quite important. Because now I can go through my life not worrying about when I do fail. That's, That's right. not a trivial point, Matthew Clark. I never, I never said it was trivial. You said just... that the, all of them were trivial, but that one, that's, that's good. Someone get that researcher more money. Yeah, I agree with you, Jackie. Well, the moral of this story I think we can all take away is don't swallow magnets, drugs and alcohol don't mix, beer goggles actually work, and, I mean, if you always look on the bright side, hey, when you fail, you'll be happier if you were deluded in the first place. It's the sound of sound. That's about all we've got time for this week on Diffusion. Contributing to the show this week was Jackie Hayes, Richard Coots, Matt Clark, and our fantastic new producer who's hiding behind the paneling desk tonight, Tilly Boleyn. Diffusion is recorded in the studios at 2SER Sydney, and we're also broadcast out across Australia by the Community Broadcasting Network. Alternatively, you can catch our podcast on iTunes. I'm Jackie Perfer, and you can see us next week here with the Diffusion team Proving to you that scientists can be pretty cool and not just nerds.